right, well, my name is Sean, I'm the lead pastor here, and we are back in our series on the New Testament book of Philippians. It's been a little bit because of the missions conference and everything, so kind of want to remind us of where we've been. But first, our passage today is going to be found on page 10 in your order of worship, and it's also going to be found on page 922 in the uh, dark black Bible there in front of you if you'd like uh, to use that Bible, page 922. And if you don't have a Bible with you at home, please take that one as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. So I want to get us into this text today before we look at it by um, reminding you of a very famous sentence. Many of us in high school were exposed to this sentence for the first time. I remember the first time I read it was back when I used to have flowing locks of thick, luscious hair. And so um, well, here it goes. Ready? It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. And thus goes on that famous opening sentence from Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. This great classic story of love, loss, betrayal, sacrifice, redemption set in a contrast between Paris and London during the French Revolution. And I bring that up because it's a great metaphor for us to use for what use for what Paul wants to do today. Paul has been contrasting and continues to do so two ways to live for those already inside the church. Now, we're really good about talking about two ways to live for like, you know, us versus them. Paul's not doing that. Paul's not like, yeah, them dirty people out there versus you clean, squeaky people in here. He is not doing that. He's talking about people in here right now, two different ways that we can live that out. Do we cherish the earthly city or do we live out our heavenly citizenship is the question he wants to ask. And the tale that he has been telling us and continues to tell us is also a tale of love and loss and sacrifice, betrayal and redemption. So, like I said, it's been a while. It's been about three weeks. So what I want to do is I want to go back one passage and remind us of that previous passage and where we've been so we can jump in today and kind of have some actual context. So if you would, would you look with me at the previous passage, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, we looked at a couple weeks ago. Paul says this, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, so where we were back then, depending on when Paul wrote this, we don't exactly know. There's a high probability that he was facing probable execution at the hands of the Roman government. And so facing his impending mortality, Paul points to the reality of the bodily resurrection as a destination to arrive at, that that is his hope, this destination he wants to get to. And that's a weird way to put it for us. We, we wouldn't call it like a destination. And so what's going on here is Paul is writing to a 
church full primarily of Gentile Christians. That means that these are people who have no exposure to the Old Testament. They didn't have any of those categories. And so when they first heard the gospel, it was all new to them. So they've been, this church has been around for about a decade at this point. So hopefully they had been reading their Old Testament because it was the only Bible at the time. But Paul still is talking to them primarily in the categories that they would understand. And what they had to deal with is this thing called dualism. And it's kind of around for us today too. You know how it's kind of in the air you breathe that you don't really know where this idea got in your head. It's kind of just always been there that there's spiritual and then there's like, you know, the real or the physical. And for some reason, you don't really know why it's never been explained, but spiritual is like good, physical is bad. And, you know, when you die, you're going to shed the physical and do this spiritual thing and be free of the body somehow. You may not believe that, but you know that's kind of like almost a default setting of a lot of people in our culture, right? Okay, this means yes, this means no. Yeah, so that's called dualism, and it was like super heavy at the time. It's completely unbiblical. The Old Testament viewpoint is we're a a psychosomatic whole. We're body and soul in one, and we're not meant to be ripped apart, that God made us that way. But this dualism idea slips in, and so there's this idea that when you die, what you really want is to return to pure light or to shed the physical and had this free existence as just pure spirit or whatever, that was good. And so when Paul comes to them and says, man, I really want to attain this resurrection of my body, categorically, most of the Gentiles who would hear that would go, ew, why? You don't want that. That's bad. You want to get rid of the body. You don't want to to have the body. And so Paul is really making this case that, no, it's all about the resurrection of the body. It's all about attaining that. And Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Jesus has already made me his own. He's already been given new life in Christ. Now he wants that new life ultimately expressed in resurrection one day, someday. And so what Paul is getting at here is that Jesus comes to us, the way we put it for the kids a couple weeks ago, is that Jesus comes to us in salvation and he kind of slaps us on the back and goes, tag, you're it. And he takes off inviting us to chase after him for greater intimacy. So Paul's like, yeah, press on to chase Jesus because he's already got you. So what we're looking at today is this joyful chase after Jesus, this call for greater intimacy for Christians. So one of the things we're going to look at today is, is that. And so here's how I want to categorize this. We as a church have kind of come up with four values that we really kind of emphasize as how we do our ministry. It's live, grow, thrive, and then go. So live is receiving new life in the gospel. Grow is coming to understand more of that gospel. Thrive is living in the reality of that gospel. And then go is taking that gospel. And so what Paul is going to emphasize here today is what we would call our value of thrive. This is people who know the gospel, they've received the gospel, they have understanding of the gospel, they've been disciples for a while, but we're really looking at the appropriation or the application, the living out of that reality. They may know all the stuff, but are they thriving in the reality of the gospel? That's where Paul is today. So with that in mind, now let's look at today's passage, Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before Your Word today, we ask that You would once again open this Word up to us. Would You give us truth, Lord, for our growth and for our transformation We pray, Father, that you would help us to see ourselves as we are, that we would long for greater obedience, that we would see that you've empowered us to that deeper relationship, and so we would strive after it because you have claimed us. I pray that you would help us, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so throughout this chapter... Paul has been really emphasizing two big things in in, in his argument towards this Philippian church. One is the bodily resurrection that we just talked about. The second is the Christian's relationship to the law of God. All that stuff in the Old Testament, all that, what do we do with that? Do Christians have to come to Jesus through the Old Testament law first? Because what was happening was there are these guys going around to these Gentile churches who hadn't had any exposure to the Old Testament, and they were coming along and saying, hey, whoa, 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 that is our Messiah, not yours. So if you're going to come to that Messiah, you have to go through Judaism first, and then you've got to come to Jesus. So you need to start obeying the law, you need to start living this lifestyle, and uh, men, you need to cut something off, okay? This is what you have to do to come to Jesus. On the other side, you had people like, grace, God doesn't care about that stuff anymore. Live like you want. That's old school stuff. This is reset button, man, and Jesus, you don't need that. And Paul comes to both of those people and and says, no, you are both denying the gospel, The law keeper looks to their self-righteousness, their personal effort, their religious merit. That's their functional savior, not the Lord Jesus. The other side looks to their freedom, to their indulgence as their functional savior. Complete denial of the body, complete engagement of the body. And both sides, Paul says, you're earthly and focused on the body. You're not focused on Jesus. And so Paul counters both of them with, a heavenly gospel. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. Since we cherish our real Savior, our lives then display our real King. In other words, what Paul is doing, Paul is coming to people, he says, you may say the right things, you may say with your mouth you believe this, but at the end of the day, everybody knows what you really believe because you can't help but live it out and display it. What are we living out? What are we displaying is what he's asking these Christians in Philippi. 
So we'll start out in verse 17 with the best of times. Paul begins with saying brothers. It could also mean sisters. It means siblings put together. And he's just said this a couple verses before. And in Paul's writings, whenever he uses this particular term, it's usually a term of affection. It's usually because something's going on in his heart. There's something bad happening here. And I really want you all to listen to me. This is a, this is a guys, I'm one of you. We're family. You need to listen to this. And what does he say? It sounds really odd to our ears, but Paul says, y'all should be more like me, right? Now, you and I may think that, right? We, but we're good enough. We know not to say it out loud, right? Paul writes it to them. He says, hey, walk, live, but walk like me and the mature from verse 15. Walk like we do. Live your life out like we do. Again, this is not to get new life in Jesus. Paul is not saying, okay, walk like this, jump through these hoops, and then Jesus will love you. He's not saying that. He said, because Jesus has loved you, because you've been given new life in him, here's what it should look like in your life. Follow after us. Imitate Paul's passionate pursuit of intimacy with Jesus right then and Paul's passionate pursuit of resurrection with Jesus one day someday pursue those both passionately just like Paul is here's how I put it for the boys and girls to make sure we don't miss this let's look at verse 17 boys and girls says this Paul says my dear friends join together with me and the other grown-up Christians by chasing after Jesus so boys and girls who are still here, you want to be good at something one day? You, you, you want to like really get better at something? What you do, you find people who are already good at it and you watch them and you follow them. You imitate them. That's what Paul is saying right here. Paul is saying, y'all join together in imitating me because pursuing growth as a Christian, is a family event. It's a team sport. It's not an individual medal event. Oh, do you want to be more passionate about your faith? Do you want to grow? Like really grow in your intimacy with Jesus? Well, don't be a lone wolf Christian. Grab a friend. Grab a more mature Christian and start meeting together. And together y'all can go where Christ is taking us. Because since we cherish our real Savior, our lives then display our real King. So we've seen the best of times in verse 17. Now we have the worst of times in verse 18 and 19. Look with me at verse 18. Paul says this. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Notice there's that word walk again. It's a, this, is a, this is a Hebraism. This is how the Old Testament, they tend to talk about how you live your life. Instead of saying living, they say walking your life. Again, here's what's important about that. He's not talking about their doctrine, what they believe. These are people who say the right things that they believe. He's saying, how are you actually implementing this in your life? What does your life look like? He's talking to people with some connection to the church. And he says, did you catch? They can live their life as enemies of the cross. Not enemies of Jesus, enemies of the cross. Right? The cross that says we're so bad we're so messed up, we're so evil and broken and bent and rebellious that Jesus had to die to save us. That cross, it's insulting to many. It's barbaric to many. 
Even people in the church, Paul says, can reject the cross. I mean, we're so used to hearing about this after 2,000 years of Christianity. Don't forget, the Roman Empire invented crucifixion not so much because it was so cruel to the individual, but because it was such a spectacle to help subjugate a people. It was how they came and enforced their empire and their culture with crucifixion. It scared people. It was shameful. It was a curse. It was not a blessing. It was not something that you would glory in. And yet, Paul says you can be enemies of that. And notice here, Paul is weeping over these people. He is not sitting up going, I'm a mature Christian. I got it all together. (laughs) I'm so much better than you guys. You need to get it right. He's not gloating. He's weeping. He's saying with tears, these people are not walking according to what they actually believe. Committed Christians, people in the church saying the right things, but they're not walking it out. Oh, this, this sobers me. I hope it sobers you. This is very humbling, the idea that we can say and believe the right things, but somehow in our life actually be an enemy of the cross. People who get this are very quick to repent when confronted instead of digging in and defending themselves. So this is a pretty hard description, especially for those in church. So how do we know who these people are, right? How do we know that we're not one of them? Well, look with me at verse 19. He gives us a fourfold description of how to figure this out. He says what? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. And their mind is set on earthly things. All right, so let's walk through these real quick. So enemies of the cross, instead of passionately pursuing after Christ, these guys are running down a path towards pain and ruin. Paul says they worship their belly. Okay, what do we do with that? They worship their belly. Well, there's two ways we can go. One is literal. He actually means belly. Okay, so in an age with no television, in an age where most of the people were not literate, what did you do for entertainment? You would have people come in and tell stories. And so you could go down to the town square and you could see guys sitting there holding a little sign that says, we'll teach for food. And so they'll grab it. Hey, yeah, come on here. So literally Paul is saying, you guys need to be careful if you're gonna go get some grifter preacher who just wants to get his next meal. He'll come to your church and he'll say whatever will get a good crowd and a bigger meal. Be careful with those people. It could be that. Or it could also be metaphorical, where belly is the idea of our inner desires. It's, it's the idea of our ultimate drives. These are people who are living a, a self-focused lifestyle. Their God is their own personal desires he could be talking about as well. And it kind of goes back to what he's been talking about with how we look at God's law. Worshiping our desires can manifest itself in two ways, and you've heard these ways. One For the Christian and church world, joy comes from what you consume. If God didn't want me to, he wouldn't give me this desire to. It must be okay. It's looking to freedom. It's looking to indulgence rather than to Jesus. Or the opposite error, right? Joy comes from what you don't consume. I'm right with God because I deny those things, unlike freedom boy over there. See, it's looking to self-righteousness rather than looking to Jesus and his righteousness. And both of those are Jesus denying idolatry for the Christian. 
They're enemies of Jesus' cross. They're something you should be ashamed of. And yet these people glory in it. Their freedom or their self-righteousness. Either way, Paul says, you're enemies of the cross. Which brings us to the verb in verse 19. The final big thought, their mind is set on earthly things. We could actually translate this, cherishing the earthly. Think about that, cherishing, holding close. See, in both of our examples, the self-righteous or the self-indulgent, these are church people who are anchored in this world. They cherish this world. They're not chasing after the heavenly resurrection of the world to come. They're anchored here. They get their identity from either what they indulge in or what they deny, but it's all focused here. See, Paul's trying to get them to lift their faces up and recognize that for Christians, this world is not where our hope is. And we can say that all the time. But your children know where your hope is. And, they don't, and it's not because what you've told them. They watch. Boys and girls, you know what mom and dad really put their hope in. Your coworkers probably know what your real hope is in. It's based on what you complain about at work and coffee breaks. See, we show people where our real hope is. And Paul is coming here and says, look, you're either passionately chasing after Jesus or you're passionately going after your own appetites and desires. And doing so makes you an enemy of the cross. So since we cherish our real Savior, our lives then display who our real King is. So we've had the best of times, we've had the worst of times, and now we have the spring of hope starting in verse 20. Look with me at verse 20. Paul says this, says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot going on here, but I need to, I need, we need to back up about a month and a half to remind you when we talked about the city of Philippi itself. Okay, so short version, Philippi is a colony of Rome. That doesn't mean much to us because we think, okay, but it was a special relationship. It was basically the empire went to Rome and went control C. They walked over here to Philippi and went control V. Okay, it was a little Rome and it was like a miniature version of it. It had special rights that the land around it didn't have. It was a miniature version of, a, of Rome filled with people who had extra rights. The people here were mostly citizens in most Roman cities outside of Rome. There were actually more slaves and non-citizens. Philippi had a high percentage of citizens. And also what they did is as the legions were retiring because they had conquered so much territory, what they did is they would give these retired military people land and houses in Philippi. So thank you for your service. Here's a house. So it was chocked full of retired military and special citizens. These are people who loved them some Rome. They took great pride in their Roman identity, their special status as a little Rome. And so with that in mind, we go back and we look at those words citizenship, that word savior, that word Lord, and we realize there, there are political claims being made here. Here's what I mean. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus, there's this time when someone comes up to him and asks him a question about paying taxes. And Jesus rather famously says, give me a coin. He gets a coin. He goes, whose image is on the coin? And the answer, of course, is Caesar. And Jesus makes that famous statement that many of you probably know, right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things to the Lord, the things that are, are, are God's. So on all Roman coins was an imprint of Caesar himself. 
on the other side of that coin, you would also find the words Savior, and you would find the word Lord, which sounds really weird to us, doesn't it? Because of our incipient dualism, we tend to think of Savior and Lord as spiritual, whatever that means, whereas the Romans would have thought of Savior and Lord as only physical titles. Here's what I mean. Their money had a picture of Caesar, and it said Lord and Savior. So the things that they used every day in every transaction reinforced that Caesar is the Savior and the Lord. Because they lived in what's called the Pax Romana, the great Roman peace. And at the time, it was a miracle of history. And people, even at that time, recognized this miracle that they lived in. Now, you and I live in the Pax Americana, so we're like, uh, what's the big deal? But historically speaking, the fact that crime is the exception, not the norm, is not historically normal. It's only been in, in great times of peace when the whole world is not just riddled with crime, when you're afraid to go out side of your house at any time. The, that fact that they brought this into the ancient, ancient, ancient world was a big deal that crime was gone. You could walk between cities and not be afraid of bandits. They had conquered all this territory. There was rule of law. There was infrastructure. They had running fountains, water. You could get fresh water. They had sewer systems. It was a golden age of civilization, and Augustus Caesar ushered that in, and they considered him a savior for doing it. They called him the savior because of that. And then Lord is a political term that the New Testament writers grab and apply to Jesus. That means the king, the ruler. So Caesar was like, yeah, I'm large and in charge. I'm the Lord. So here Paul comes to this city full of retired military and special citizens who love their Roman heritage. And he comes and says, don't cherish all this earthly stuff. Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is your Lord. You are one of his citizens. And although Caesar may claim to have subjected the whole world, how does this text end? No, Jesus has already subjected all things to himself. He is the conquering hero. Don't look to Rome for your peace, security, safety, hope. Uh, dear Christians, I know you and I don't really look to government for hope and safety. I know, I know. But we do oftentimes look to elections, don't we? If, if we can just get our people in, then things would be okay. If we'll just get these set of people elected, then I can unclench for a little while maybe, right? I get it. You should be passionate about elections and go, go right ahead. But you realize that that's not where our hope is. Guard, let's be careful as we're entering another presidential election cycle. We guard our hearts. We recognize that, yes, we should be good citizens, and yes, we should care deeply about things, but our hope, our ultimate hope is not in who wins elections. It's that there is a Lord who is the King of kings already, and he has subjected all things to himself. And so what do we do? We passionately pursue that. And what does that look like? He tells us in the text. You just await you wait in hope. That's all we're doing. Here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Let's look at your verse 20. Paul says this. He goes, look, but that's not us. Our hometown is heaven, and we're just visiting here, waiting for Jesus, our rescuer and king, to come get us. 
Boys and girls, have you ever been waiting to go somewhere you really want to go? Someone's supposed to come pick you up and take you there. Maybe it's a party. Maybe you know there's going to be ice cream there. You're like, yes. But you have to wait, and you hate waiting. But because you know the good that's coming, you're able to wait better. That's what's going on here. The Bible tells us that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, that Jesus himself is going to come back for us while we're waiting for him. And he's going to take us to a party at his dad's house. Doesn't that sound good, boys and girls? I'd be surprised if there's not ice cream there. And even better than ice cream, when Jesus comes back, he who was raised bodily from the dead, who exists in eternity in a glorious body, the text tells us that he will come and he will transform our lowly bodies. I love how the text, how Paul grabs onto their cultural narrative and says, you know, you've got some things right here. This disdain you have for the body, this recognition that your body is broken and that it's something you want to shed, that's actually not a bad desire. But what you want is not for it to be destroyed and you be free of it. What you need is for the Lord Jesus to come and make your lowly body like his glorious resurrected body. You need to be made new completely, humanity. 2.0 in Jesus. And Paul says, I strive for that. And he calls them to imitate that striving after him. Because since we cherish our real Savior, our lives then will display our real King. All right, so let's wrap this up. Paul can call us to imitate him because Jesus has gone before us all and Jesus has lived out this exact text for us. And so in him, we can follow after as well. Jesus Christ himself wept tears over his adversaries in Jerusalem. Jesus walked as a citizen of heaven and yet what did he do? He took on a lowly body so he could end in destruction himself as an enemy on the cross even as people mocked him, even as people gloried in his death instead of being ashamed of it. And then three days later, his lowly body was what? Transformed into a glorious resurrection body, and he became both Savior and Lord in his resurrection. And you remember the la- some of the last words he said before the Great Commission? What did he say? He said, all authority has been given to me. He claimed, I am the king. I have all authority. He has walked through this text. And so when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the resurrected Lord, you too can become a citizen of heaven and find joy in pursuing after this Jesus. Now, don't you want that? Then repent of everything you've called religion. Just just let go of everything you think Christianity is. And see that right here, it's just placing your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for texts like this that challenge your people. That give us feedback that might be a little difficult. And so, Lord, we pray that you would even now give us repentance deep in our hearts, that we would look 
that we would see where we have walked as enemies of your cross and that we would repent and be ashamed and find forgiveness instead of getting intransigent and bitter and holding on to what we should be ashamed of. Lord, would you make us more robust disciples and pursue after Jesus with intimacy. And Lord, we pray for those here today who don't know you, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and shown to be crucified for sinners and raised for our new life, that you would be true to your promise to draw all people to him. Even now, Lord, would you do your work of salvation and cause many to repent and believe. And we pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.